All right, so we're continuing our series, uh, The Spirit-Filled Life, and we're in this series, we're going through a journey through the book of Ephesians. This is our third series within our bigger journey through the book of Ephesians. And so this section, The Spirit-Filled Life, centers around living a life that is controlled by the Spirit versus the flesh. Controlled by the Spirit versus the flesh. That's what it means. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to be Spirit-controlled. To be filled with the Spirit means that you are so filled with the things of God in your life that when your flesh desires to do things you know you should not do, you say yes to God and His Spirit instead of saying yes to your flesh. It's the Spirit-filled life. And so, so we have looked at what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. We've looked at, we looked at uh, Spirit-filled speech and how being controlled by the Spirit should impact the way we talk. We've looked at unforgiveness this last week and how it's important that we do not allow bitterness and anger to control us. We want the Spirit to control us, not our offense and our bitterness and our anger. And we, we talked about that last week. And so this week we're going to look at a, a, another subject that uh, I think all of us are tempted to or have been tempted to or will be tempted in And so we're going to look at that in just a few moments. But before we get into that, I I just want to open in prayer, ask that the Lord would help me to communicate clearly and help you to receive the word of the Lord. Amen. God, we come before you this morning and I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for the privilege of reading your word and hearing your word. God, today's about you. All of this is about you. Everything that we do is for your name and for your glory. So God, I submit myself to you and and I need the power of the, your Holy Spirit to help me every time I preach. So I submit to you. I pray you help me to communicate clearly. And help us all, Lord, to receive your word with gladness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many of you have been falsely advertised to? Yeah? Falsely advertised to? Yeah, you could kind of think of some commercials. Those uh, as seen on TV products that you might buy places and you see them on tv and you think man that looks so good it's gonna do exactly what i think it's gonna do and then and then you fall to the temptation and you order it and you pay twice the price because they don't tell you about shipping and handling and and you and you get it in and you open it up and you're like wait a minute why doesn't it do what i thought it was gonna do why doesn't it function like i thought it was gonna function they showed on tv this is what's supposed to happen and it really didn't happen that's called false advertisement I had that happen to me one time. Who, who read my article um, in the Courier on Thursday, Friday, and the title of my article was, I Love My Golf Clubs. That's how I titled it. And, and I do love my golf clubs. And I was playing golf with those golf clubs that I love, that I'm thankful that I have, even though there are better golf clubs out there. I'm thankful I have what I have. And playing with those golf clubs at a tournament in Lafayette, and uh, it was a fundraiser tournament, and somebody at this one hole was selling uh, a benefit, right? So you're, they're trying to raise funds, trying to make money as much as they can. So they said if you, each, each player in the team gives $20, then uh, you can tee off in a special way. It'll give you an advantage on this hole. But the purpose is to raise funds. But on top of that, we're going to give you a certificate that will uh, allow you to get a free golf club. And, they, and you look at the certificate and it's free in all caps, free golf club. Donate money, get a free golf club. So I don't, we each donated our money and it didn't help us on the whole, but we were, it was going to a good cause. 
And so we get the certificate. I'm driving in the golf cart past the hole, and I read. And would you know, in the smallest print possible, that you could that you would need readers to to see it. You read in the small print. It said twenty nine ninety five shipping and handling. That is what you call false advertisement. It is not free. It is $29.95. No matter how you slice it, it's $29.95. You can say that they would all, that, that it would, you would have to pay for shipping anyway, but I don't care. They shouldn't have said free. They should have said, we will give you a golf club and it will cost you $29.95 shipping and handling. But they didn't do that. And I'm, I'm over it. I'm not letting that bitterness stew in me. I never got the golf club. Didn't buy it for $29.95. Probably wasn't worth it. But, This idea of false advertisement, I believe that we are falsely advertised to as as concerning sin. It began in the garden. Freddie was talking about it during the prayer time. In Genesis chapter 3, it's the the, the account of the fall of mankind, the account of the fall of Adam and Eve. And what happens in the fall? The fall, before Eve and Adam fell, the enemy came to Eve in the form of a serpent. And what did the serpent say? What were the first words out of the serpent's mouth, out of Satan's mouth. Did God really say? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So the first thing the enemy is trying to do is he's trying to convince Eve and, and trying to forget to convince every human after Adam and Eve to distrust what God's word says. God's word says this is the way life should be lived. These are my ways. This is, this is the way life should be lived that is best for human flourishing and for the glory of my name. And so obey me, follow after me, submit to me in my ways. And the enemy wants to come. And, and this is what the temptation said. Eve looked at the fruit and it, it was desirable to the eyes. And it was desirable to make one wise. And so, and, and, and Satan said that when you eat it, you will be like God. That was the advertisement that the enemy gave. You will, you, it looks good, you, you, you will become wise, and you will become like God. Did any of that happen? Falsely advertised to. What happened? They, Adam and Eve plunged humanity into the curse of sin. And as a result of that, we've been experiencing the repercussions of, of, of human beings being born with a sinful nature, with, with a propensity to sin. And the effects are everywhere. The effects of sin and sin's curse are not just on human beings, but they're on the earth itself. You look at the earth, you look at, you, you look in California at these wildfires, you look at hurricanes and tornadoes, you look at natural disasters of all kinds. It is a reflection of the fact that this earth is broken. It's broken. And we're broken. And we cannot believe the lies of the enemy as concerning any area of life. He's a liar. He's a father of lies. John 8, 44 says that he lies because that is a part of his character and his nature. He's, and, and, and so he can't help but lie. And so what we're going to look at this morning is an area of sin that is such a stronghold for many people in this life. It's the area of sexual, Im, sexual immorality, the area of sexual sin. And, and, and we, we are tempted in our life at some point to disobey God's word as concerning our human sexuality. So what we want to do is we want to look at the section of scripture we're going to cover and then we're going to ask a question and then answer the question in three simple answers. Let's look at Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. It says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things that we just listed, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. A lot of text there, a lot of scripture there. But here's the point of all that we're going to get into. is that the spirit-filled life, the spirit-controlled life is a life that is not controlled by sexual sin, but it's a life that is controlled by the Spirit of God. It's a life that is not controlled by the impulses of our flesh, but it's a life that's controlled by the Holy Spirit. And we learn to say no to sexual temptation and say yes to God. You know, if the statistics hold true that I've studied as I've studied for this message, it, it, 60 to 70 percent of Christians in churches struggle with sexual sin across our nation. That's the reality, is that the world has so infiltrated the life of Christians and the life of the church that, that to some degree you look at Christians' lives and you wonder, who are they? What do they stand for? Are they really a believer in Jesus Christ if this is the way that they live? So what we want to unpack, what, what we want to ask is this, is why is sexual immorality out of place in the life of a believer? That's the question. Why is it out of place? Why is sexual immorality, sexual sin, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, pornography, sexual sin, lust of our eyes, why is sexual immorality out of place in the life of a believer? And the first answer is this. Because of who our Lord is. Because of who our Lord is. So if we claim to be believers in Jesus Christ... Because of who your Lord is, that is why it is out of place to live continually a lifestyle of sexual immorality. Let's go back to the text. That's where we get this first answer. It says, therefore, be imitators of who? Of God, of Christ, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so so we're called to be imitators of our Lord. Because of who our Lord is, this is why it would be, it would not be a great, it would not be a, 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 a reflection of Christ when we live and walk in sexual immorality. Why? Because God is love. And God demonstrated love. How did he demonstrate love? What does it say in those verses? As Christ loved us and did what? Gave himself up for us. First John 4 says this, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from who? Love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is what? God not only loves, but he is love. God not only loves, but he is love. In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us first and sent his son to be the the propitiation, which means satisfaction for our sins. The payment he paid, he satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And here's the picture. God, as it says in 1 John chapter 4, God is love. And so if God is love and, and, and he demonstrated love through Christ and, and Christ is our Lord, then any false view of love that is manifested in our life does not reflect who our Lord is. The world and our culture, they do not get the right to define what love is. They don't get the right to, to define what love is. Who gets that right? The one who created love. The one who is love. Because God is love, he has the prerogative to define what true love is. And what it looks like as it is manifested in the lives of his creations. In this section, God's love is contrasted with the false appearance of love and sexual immorality. With the true definition of love, which is sacrificial. It's just sacrificial love. Amen? And so... I just want you to know that sexual immorality, sexual sin is, is a false love. I've had conversations with people that have walked in adultery. And, and I've heard them say, I've heard them say, but, but we love each other. But, but I loved each other. And I didn't have love here. And so we loved each other. So we walked in this sin knowing that it, knowing that it is contrary to God's word. They're willing to set aside and they claim to be Christians, willing to set aside God's word, what God's word says about adultery. And because they, they feel loving feelings, they're in love, they're willing to compromise the truth of God's word. If, if you really have Jesus as your Lord and, and he is the definition of love and his sacrificial love is shed abroad in your heart, all other false views of love pale in comparison to God's perfect love. Amen? So, so the world doesn't get the, the right to define what love is. Love as defined by God is self-sacrificing. No greater love is this than that one would lay down his life for his friends. How does how does the world, through, through, through sexual pleasure and sexual sins, define love? Love is defined by our culture as seen in movies and television or heard in music. And it's self, it, it is a self-centered attempt at love. The world's love is lustful and self-indulgent. It loves because the object of love is attractive, enjoyable, pleasant, satisfying, and will love in return. It is always conditional. It is not concerned about commitment, but only satisfaction. It is not concerned with giving, only getting. Immorality and impurity are ultimately forms of greed in the area of sexual sin. Do you hear what the text said earlier in 1 John 4? It said, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Scripture tells us in Romans that he loved us while we were still Sinners wanted nothing in return. He defined what true love is. True love is not getting into a relationship for the purpose of getting something out of that relationship. That's not true love. True love is being in a relationship where you wish only the best and your self-interest are not at play. 
That's what love is. So any other form that our culture tells us is a definition of love as connected with our sexuality is a lie because they don't get the right to define it. God does. And you know, the implications of this wrong view of love, the, the impact we have on our culture is pervasive. It's pervasive because, of, because these sins seem so attractive. Spouses are abandoned. Did you hear what I said earlier? About adultery, this false view of love. People will say, well, I just don't love my spouse anymore. I don't love them anymore. It's because they've been influenced by a cultural view of love. Love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. Love is a covenant. Love is a commitment. Spouses are abandoned. You know, just abandoned. Because I have loving feelings for somebody else and they they don't know what love is. Spouses are abandoned. Children are neglected. Children are forgotten in cases like that. Children are forgotten when it comes to sexual sin. They're forgotten when it comes to adults trying to fulfill their sexual pleasure. Spouses are abandoned. Children are neglected. Homes are destroyed. Friends are spurned. You try to to confront somebody that is caught up with lustful thoughts in the area of sexual sin. They will reject you because they're being led by their flesh and not by the Holy Spirit. Friends are spurned because no effort is spared to have what one is lusting after. If given free reign in our life as Christians or in anyone's life, sexual sin will lead to complete insensitivity to the welfare of others. Which can lead to brutality and frequently to violent crimes. Just look at our world. Look at our world today. The amount of crimes that are committed because of love. Because of love. I read this story in Colorado. You, you've heard the story. If you follow the news, there was this man who killed his wife and his kids because he was having an affair with another woman. And the woman didn't know he was even married. He lied to her and said that he wasn't even married. So he got into a, she got into a relationship with him. And she found out later whenever a wife, a pregnant woman with kids were found missing. And the husband had to keep the game up. So he went before the public and pleaded for his wife and his kids. And ultimately, he confessed to, to, to killing them. That's, what, that, that, that's the ultimate. That, 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 that is extreme. I will admit, that is extreme. But that's where lustful sexual attraction will lead you if you have no Holy Spirit in your heart restraining you. This is the picture. The culture has, has corrupted our view of love. You know, ultimately, this false message of our culture concerning human sexuality in our life is, is, is really centered upon this idea about our life in general. You guys ever heard the phrase, uh, the world is your oyster? The world is your, I don't even like oysters. When I think of an oyster, I think of, I, mean, I probably shouldn't say this from the pulpit, but I just think of mucus. <laughs> That's what I think of. I really do. That's what I think of. And you got to force it down. Put some hot sauce on it and, and, and a cracker to, to make it edible. I know. Now, look, I have seen at Drago's, they've got those oysters with all the cheese on them and all of that. And it does look appetizing, but then I resist the temptation because I can't get that out of my mind. The world is your oyster. So what do you do when you take an oyster? You, you, you suck it down, right? Was that a good sound there? I had to make you laugh because I had some heavy stuff I said earlier. <laughs> I had to get some laughs out of you here for a moment. But, but what's, what's the idea behind, behind that, that, that phrase, the world is your oyster? 
suck everything out of this life because this life is all you have. That's the idea, right? Suck everything out of this life. This, the, the, the world is your oyster. The, the possibilities are limitless. Get everything out of this life while you can. What about the phrase carpe diem? You guys, you guys ever heard Robin Williams talk about this phrase in, in, uh, in the movie, um, what was the movie, Dead Poets Society? And so, so here's the scene. I watched the scene this week as I was preparing for this message, and I, I thought about the, the phrase carpe diem. And so I looked at the scene. He takes the classroom. He takes the boys out of the classroom. He brings them in, 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 to, to this, this, this case of all kind of athletic trophies and pictures of, of, of boys that lived before them that accomplished great things. And he said, look at these boys. Look at these men, boys. They were just like you. They were just like you. But right now, their flesh is being eaten by the worms. So that's, that's, what, that's what it says. Their flesh is being eaten by the worms. And so he looks at him and says, Carpe diem, boys, seize the day. And this is what Robin Williams is saying. Because eventually your flesh is going to be eaten by worms, make the most of this life. Make the most of this life ultimately because the idea is this is all you have. This is all you get. And that is not true. This life is not all you get. This life is not your final destination. All of us are eternal beings and one day we will live in eternity somewhere. Either in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ or separated from him for eternity in hell. That's the truth of scripture. And so this, 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 is, the, this is the pervasive life that is at the core of a misdefinition of love. This, it's this idea. Get everything out of this life. You're the center of life. You're the center of life. You are what's most important in this life. Do what you want to do, how you want to do it, and how dare anyone tell you that you can't do what you want to do. How dare anyone tell you you can't follow your desires. So when you come up with God's word and it's contrary to what your desires are, they will hate you for it. And that's the core of this lie. The underlying message in all of these quotes is that life is all there is. And because this life is all there is, then suck everything out of this life that you possibly can. Get everything you can. So why is sexual immorality out of place in the life of a believer? Because of who our Lord is and because of the example that he gave us. He gave us an example that life is not all about us. That life is about others and that is the true definition of love. It's about willing and wishing someone else's best interest above yourself. Amen? Amen. Second thing we learn here to the answering the question, answering the question, why is sexual immorality out of place in the life of a believer? Secondly, because of who we are. Because of who our Lord is and what he demonstrated of what true love is. And secondly, because of who we are. Let's go back to the text. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper as is proper who are you it's just not proper among saints let there be no filthiness no foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place it's out of place for us because of who we are but instead let there be thanksgiving this is my thanksgiving message happy thanksgiving my wife said why are you not preaching on thanksgiving i said i am it's in the text happy thanksgiving you know thanksgiving really is the cure what is sexual sin if it's not greed and covetousness, that's what it is. At its heart, it's greed and covetousness. You want something you cannot have because God says you cannot have it. And so you covet it. You're greedy. Thanksgiving is the cure. Thankful for who 
God has provided in your life. Thankful for what he has provided in your life. Thankfulness. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be, you may be sure this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And that's what I want to tell you. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For, the, for, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light. Who are we now as believers? We're light. We're no longer darkness. Walk. That means the, let the pattern of your life walk as children of light. For the fruit of light, the fruit of righteousness of walking in the light, there is fruit of walking in the light, and it, it, it is all that is good and right and true. So, why shouldn't we walk in sexual immorality as Christians? Because of who we are. Who are we in Christ? We're new creations. We used to be darkness, but now we're light. How can we walk in darkness? How can we walk continually in the darkness and believe the lies of the world about sexual, sexual sin and sexual, sexuality whenever that used to be who we are, but we're not that way anymore? Who are we? As believers, we've been declared righteous. Romans 3, 21 through 26 says this, but now the righteousness of God, listen to this, this is so foundational to our faith. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's been manifested in the gospel. Righteousness used to be you had to abide by the law to be righteous, but now righteousness has come how? Through Christ, through the gospel. Righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, speaking of the Old Testament, they bore witness to who? To Christ. They bore witness to Christ. So the law affirms Christ. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the gospel. For there is no distinction for all of sin. and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who place their faith in Jesus. So if you place your faith in Jesus, you are justified. You're forgiven. Your sins in the past, all of them, no matter how bad they are, no matter how many they are, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, before you stood guilty before a holy God, but now through faith in Christ, you stand justified. It's as if you stood before the court of heaven. And the ultimate judge, God the Father, slams the gavel down and hands you a sheet of paper that says, forgiven, cleansed, washed clean, no more sins. You are justified. You are declared righteous. You're declared righteous. Amen? Paul summarized it well in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, God the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might, what? Say it with me. Become the righteousness of God. Doesn't say that we may earn the righteousness of God. Doesn't say that we may work up enough spirituality to become the righteousness of God. The gospel is, is that through faith in Jesus Christ, you become something that you're not. You become something that you can never be on your own. You become the righteousness of God. The picture of the gospel is that God the Father takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus 
and he clothes you with it. Isn't that good? He clothes you with his righteousness so that when the father looks at you, he didn't see, he didn't see Estelle and, and Freddie and Tina and Vern. He didn't see the individual person. He sees the very righteousness of Christ. He sees Christ. That's who we are if we're believers in Jesus Christ. Our past doesn't define us. Our past doesn't define who we are. If, if, if you, you have failed in, in, in many ways in your life, and some of you as believers right now, you're still living under the shame of, that, of those bad choices, and you're letting them define you. They don't have to define you. The truth of the gospel sets you free from your past. Amen? Bring it out in the light. Expose it to the light. And let the light of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ crush every lie of the enemy concerning your past. You are new if you belong to Christ. You are forgiven. You're the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. So, that's who we are. So, Somebody may say, well, if I'm righteous and I have the righteousness of God, if I am the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, then, then maybe that means I, could, I, can, I can sin occasionally and it's really not a big deal. If being justified means that my sins past, present, and future are covered, well then, well then if my future sins are covered, which is true, then that means I, I can just sin and, it, and it'll be okay. You know, that idea was around has been around since the early church. And the Apostle Paul had to address that over and over again in his letters. This idea that, that grace gives us a license to sin. That grace gives us a license to sin. How many of you know that that's not true? Scripture tells us that. Paul addresses it in Romans 6, 1 through 4. He says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. And that phrase, by no means, is the strongest negative possible in the original Greek language right here. It is the strongest way that he can possibly say no. He says it right here. By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? What does that mean? How can we who died to sin live in it? When we died to sin, what that means is, is that when we were crucified with Christ, we died to the power of sin's control in our life. That picture, when Ariana got baptized this morning, that's what that picture is. She was crucified with Christ in baptism, and, and Matt picked her up and raised her up, and now, and now it's a symbol and a picture of her faith in Jesus Christ. And so when you're a Christian, how can you, who has died to sin, Live in it any longer. That means, how can the pattern of your life be unrighteousness and sexual sin? Unrighteousness in in any area. How can that be the pattern? It's impossible. Because you're dead to sin. You're dead to its power. Scripture tells us that, that before Christ, we used to be slaves of sin. Sin used to control us. And we, we, we had no choice but to respond to our impulses. But now, we're dead to sin. And we're alive to God. How can you who have died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? This is, this is what we're talking about here. It's, it's about the pattern of our life. We should walk in newness of life. And so there is no justification in the life of a believer for a continued pattern of sin in your life. 
And so if you believe that, if you've heard that on YouTube from from some preacher and he tells you, you don't got to worry about sin, don't confess sin, don't worry about sin, you're forgiven, you're brand new. I just want to tell you that that that, that idea is false. You you need to be concerned about sin. Why why do we need to be concerned about sin? Because sin, sin in the life of, of a believer hinders your relationship. Why does it hinder your relationship? Because you live with a guilty conscience. And you have no passion to come before the Lord because you know what you've done. You know what you've done. And so, and so we have to live with a desire to please the Lord because it is who we are. It's who we are. Sexual immorality is out of place in our lives as believers because of who our Lord is and secondly, because of who we are. We are brand new. Amen? Amen. Thirdly, the third answer to this question is because of what our calling is. Our Lord Jesus Christ gave us the perfect definition of what love is. And because we surrendered to that definition of love through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've been transformed. And so it is out of place for us to live in sexual sin. And then lastly, because of what our calling is. Let's go back to the text. It says this, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Believers have always been called to stand out in the middle of a perverse culture. They were doing it in this day. This is why Paul was writing this to the church at Ephesus. The, the, the city of Ephesus was just as perverse as our American culture is and our worldly culture is. Just as perverse. Prostitution, adultery, fornication. They had, they had the, the, the temple to the goddess Diana that was built. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world. And, and, and she was considered to be a god of fertility. And people would come in and worship before her and, and commit all kind of sexual sin in, 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 as a form of, of worship. And so the, the, the Ephesian culture... Is just like our culture. But believers have always been called. As Paul calls the church in Ephesus, he's calling us to stand out in the middle of a perverse culture. Christianity at its foundation, hear me, is a belief system that draws clear lines. It's a belief system that draws clear lines. Our distinctives are what separate us from any belief system of the world. Clear lines. You remember Jesus when he said this? He said this in Matthew 10. He says, do not think that I've come to bring peace, but a sword. You know, people think that. People that don't know Jesus, they they say, well, well, we we, we want the brand of Christianity or the religious experience. We we like the peaceful Jesus. Because they don't read the Bible. Because if they read the Bible and they read the end of the book, they they wouldn't see a peaceful Jesus. But they want the made-up idea of who Jesus is. The made-up idea of who Jesus is is that he's just a God of peace. He doesn't want to bring division. He doesn't want to draw lines. He doesn't want to draw distinctions. He's just, he wants to be everybody's God. And he, wants, he, just, he just wants to, everyone to hold hands and love one another. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. What's he saying there? For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life, the world is your oyster, carpe diem. Whoever finds his life will what? You're going to lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's Jesus saying here? Is, is he encouraging that, that families should, di- should be divided and that families should be destroyed? No. What he's saying here is that Christianity is a call to death, to spiritual death. It's a call to drawing a clear line that if my mother, if my father, if my wife, if my children, if my mother-in-law, my father-in-law all try to get me to reject Christ, no way. No way. Christianity is a clear line of truth and error, right and wrong. And that has always been what Christianity is about. Jesus didn't come just to say that all religions are the same. He came to say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. That's what he came to say. That's what he said over and over again. And the lies of our culture, the lies of our culture, if we allow them to, if we allow the darkness, it will encroach upon us as believers and it will, it, 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 it will put out, it'll, it'll begin to snuff out that light. We'll start to hide that light. We're called to be distinct, clear, distinct, black and white, polarizing. You know, some people, they didn't sign up for that type of religious, that type of religious experience. Some of you here, you're thinking, that's not what I want. I just want to hold hands. I just want peace. You know, the beauty is, is that through the clear, black and white, powerful truth of the gospel, there is peace. There's peace with God that lasts forever, not temporal, earthly peace that means nothing, but eternal peace that will last forever. And yeah, we do hold hands in unity with brothers and sisters in Christ, and we pray for our world. But if we're we're not careful, the, the darkness starts to tempt us to cover the light. I want to end with this. This is Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Jesus describes us as Christians in two unique ways. Now again, this is the, let's think of our context. We think of, of sexual immorality and sexual sin. He calls us this in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So what is salt? Salt flavors, but salt is a preserver. We are called as Christians to preserve, to be a preservative in our culture. Everybody can't go down the, down the toilet in this culture. We have to have men and women of God that will stand for what is right and true and good as concerning sexuality. It, is go- it has gone down the tube and it continues to go down the tube. We're called to be salt. To be salt, to be different, to taste different. When the world interacts with us, they taste something different. They get a taste of what genuine love is. Amen? Secondly, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what's our second calling? It's to be light. We're to be light. And I just want to tell you, if you choose to be light in this area of sexual sin, you'll stand out. 
If you choose to reject what the world is selling us concerning sexuality and all the areas that it goes into, you will stand out and you will be light. And sometimes you feel like, well, maybe I'm just by myself. Maybe I'm just by myself. And hasn't it felt like that at times? You're in conversations with people at work and you feel like if I walk away from this perverse conversation, I'm just by myself. I have nobody there with me to support me in my stand for the light and my stand for the truth. You're not alone. You are not alone. So here's what I want to do to demonstrate the reality of you not being alone. I just want to warn you here for a second. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut out all the lights in the building just for a moment. Okay? So if you got to get up, hang on. I'm almost done. We're going to cut out all the lights. I even put towels over the back doors to cover them. And I want you to feel the darkness. And then this is what I want you to do. Don't do it now. When I cue you, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get your cell phones. And I want you to flip the light on one at a time. Just start flipping it. And we're, we're going to see something. Because each of you, listen, each of you are, have a light. Each of you are a light. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of the light. You carry the light with you. And it is your light. You're by yourself. You feel alone. But let's cut, let's cut the lights. Let's cut it right now. And I just want you to think about, the, think about the darkness. You really can't see, right? It's dark. This is what it's like being in a dark culture, right? You feel alone. It's dark. Now I want you to one at a time, just start flipping on those lights. Do you, you guys see that? It's just, it's just your phone. You're just by yourself. But the reality is is that you're not by yourself. The reality is is that when you feel like you're alone, that's what the enemy wants you to feel like, to tempt you to not make a stand for truth. To tempt you to say, you know what, I'm just going to laugh at the joke. I'm just going to go along with it. I'm just going to go along with the culture. But no, you, you shine your light. You stand for truth. And you realize that you are not by yourself. And that you have brothers and sisters in Christ that stand for truth with you. Is that not encouraging? Amen? That's encouraging to know that you're not by, by, by yourself. Just leave your cell phone lights on for a moment. But you know what the greatest encouragement is? Yeah, we, we have each other. And when we make a decision to not cut off the light and to, and to stand for truth, you know who the greatest light is? It's Jesus. He's the greatest light. And when, when we will shine our light, he promises that he'll shine his light, Right? And he is, he is the brightest light. He sets the, he sets the definition of what light is because he's the biggest and he's the brightest. So if you will shine your light, then the light of Christ will be seen. If you will shine your light in your workplace, in your family, amongst your friends, and you will choose to walk in sexual purity in every area of your life, the light of Christ will shine. And that's the light that we need. Amen? Amen. You can turn the lights back on. I want you to have that visual, I want you to have that visual in your mind when you're, when you're dealing with temptation in the area of sexual sin. Think about that. Think about that light and what we're called to do. I want to close like this. Would you stand to your feet with me? I want to read a section of scripture. This is John chapter 8. So why is sexual immorality out of place in the life of a believer? Because of who our Lord is, because of who we are, and because of what our calling is. Some of you, you have failed sexually in your life, and you're dealing with the shame. 
still today. Some of you are struggling right now. Hear me. Hear me. You're struggling right now with sexual sin. And you feel like you're in bondage and you don't know what to do. And all of us will be tempted in the future. So I want to read. I want to close with this. This is John chapter 8. I want to read a story to you. John 8, starting in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to eat. He came again to the temple. And all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And that once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Amen? It's the truth. John 3, 17 says, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but he came into the world to save the world. Lord, we thank you for the truth of that, of that message, of that story. God, I thank you. And you didn't come to condemn us because all of us, as Romans 3 tell, tells us, have fallen short of the, of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. Again, in our desires as believers in Jesus Christ is that we would reflect you as our Lord and that we would, that we would shine the light of the gospel because of who we are in Jesus Christ. God, I pray for those that are struggling in these areas. God, I, I pray that they would remember the truth of your word in John chapter 8 that they would see Jesus bending down and then looking up and saying, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There's forgiveness provided in me. Lord, I pray that if there are those here this morning that are struggling with addiction to, to pornography, they're struggling, maybe they're in the middle of an extramarital affair, whatever it is in their life, the enemy has them entangled, has them caught in his web of, of, of deceit. God, I pray that they would bring it to the light. I pray that they would seek for help. They would repent and seek for help. We thank you, Lord, that you restore and you redeem and you make us whole. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. I love you. You are dismissed.